I would like to uh, introduce this morning, if I were to put a topic on our subject this morning, it would be, uh, is God only geographical? Is he only subject to one place at one time? And I'd like to illustrate this. This is a way of thinking of the world, and perhaps even some Christians today, that our God is only geographical. And I would like to illustrate this, if I may, through uh, the battles that went on with the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II. So we'll take a few minutes to look at that, but first I want to look at what we would consider the primary king in this subject, and his name was Ahab. Now Ahab was one of the ten northern tribe kings. He was the seventh of the ten northern tribes, and for the most part, the kings of the northern tribes were wicked men, and they never honored the Lord. Uh, you know, of course, the division of the nation, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the north, the ten northern tribes. They were separated under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So we want to begin looking at Ahab just for a moment. It will help us out um, in, in our uh, process as we go through this together. Um, Head with me, please, uh, in your Bible to uh, 1 Kings 16. Keep your hand in 20. We're coming back. But in 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab was the son of Omri. Omri, of course, was the sixth king uh, of the nation of Israel. Ahab was the son of Omri. Omri was uh, just a horrible man. Look, if you would, please, at 1 Kings 16. Look at verse 25. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all those that were before him. The six kings before him, as bad as they were, he was the, he was the worst. He was the worst. Verse 26, For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger and their vanities. So he followed right the beginning with Jeroboam setting up idols in the northern uh, land and following through with the wickedness of idol worship. But Ahab began his reign now, his son, in verse uh, 28, and Omri slept with his fathers and was buried, in verse 28, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. So now Ahab comes to the throne, it's his turn to reign, and you would think that he would learn something from his father's wickedness, but uh, it was not to be so. A, as a matter of fact, Ahab, the scriptures tell us, reigned in Israel for 22 years up in the northern section of Israel, and he was worse than his father. If you would, please look at verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all those that were before him, even his own father. Incredible, incredible thing. Now, Ahab married a woman of Syria. Now, he should not have done that, but he did anyway, and her name was Jezebel. And we want to read about that in verse 31 now, if we could please, verse 31 of uh, 1 Kings uh, 16. And it came to pass that as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebeth, he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, Ethbaal, that will be important to us, king of the Sidonians, 
and went and served Baal, the wicked god of the Sidonians. He went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he begins the process now. He marries a woman from, um, of the Sidonians, and uh, she's the daughter of the king, and she is a vile person, as we'll see, a vile person. And she, through her um, wicked and perverse character, gains a complete control over this man Ahab. Remember, Ahab is not a great man of God at all. He's perverse in his ways. He's following wickedness, and now he marries a woman who is going to even incite him further. What did she do? Well, notice, please, in verse 32. And he reared up an altar uh, for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So right in the capital city of the northern tribes, he builds a temple to this god Baal. Now, when you think about it, this Baal was a fertility god, and uh, being a fertility god, all the wickedness of immorality went with this worship of this uh, fertility god. And uh, Jezebel, uh, she was not what we would call a blessing to Ahab. Turn with me, if you would, please, to chapter uh, 21, chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Chapter 21, I'd like you to look with me uh, right at verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab who did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. See, she was a cattle. She was throwing gas on the fire of his wickedness. My wife and I uh, were going to the heart of uh, Rhode Island, the heart of uh, Warwick, uh, Route 2. Uh, and as we were traveling there one night, uh, one part, as you get on to Route 2, there's, there's always someone there, and they're, they're looking for money. And they always have signs of one, uh, one uh, order or another uh, looking for a handout. And one night we drove there, and uh, a man had up a giant sign, and it said this, I am homeless, I need help. And then it added to it, because I married Satan. Now, I don't, know if he, <laughs> I don't know if he was homeless because of his wife. I don't know if he was homeless because of his own doing. I don't know. But his sign said, because I married Satan. Now, I don't believe that was true, but this guy married Satan. Jezebel. He took her into his heart. And she was more wicked than he was, and she invoked him to do wickedness. It's, it's fascinating when you read this. Now, to cut the story short because of time, uh, God raised up a man to confront Ahab. Because it seems, it seems as if because of the wickedness of this king and his wife and the Baal worship and the formulation of this God, that all the northern tribe was going to turn to Baal in, in, um, and turn away from the living God of Israel. But God raised up this, a man, his name was Elijah. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. But Elijah withstood Ahab to the face and Jezebel to the face, and you know the story about the prophets of Baal in a duel with Abraham. I mean with uh, Elijah, and he won over wonderfully. And he had pronounced... Uh, a judgment upon both Jezebel and Ahab. He told Ahab he would die in a battle and the dogs would lick his blood. Uh, it's a horrible thought. 
And sure enough, according to, I won't have you turn there, but according to 1 Kings 21, Ahab was in a battle. An archer fired a arrow perchance into the battle. It struck Ahab between the joints of his armor, and he bled out that day, and he died. And dogs came and licked the blood out of his chariot. Another prophecy was pronounced against Jezebel, and it was said that Jezebel would die and the dogs would eat her. And you can find that in 1 Kings 21, where she was thrown from a tower. Her body hit the ground and was smashed, and she died, and the dogs ate everything except her hands and her feet and her head. God says in his word, throughout his word, in a sense, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of that sin. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of that sin. Sin, left to itself, will roll like thunder, and the events of it you cannot control. An incredible thought. But I want to back up a little bit and get to our uh, thoughts about Ahab. So we're in 1 Kings 20 now, if we could. This was a few years uh, earlier, and that uh, Ahab, Ben-Hadad, the the, uh, the second, the king of Assyria, came up against Israel's capital. And you see that in chapter 20 in verse 1. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. So he came up to the capital city where Ahab was with his wife and his family and, and all his goods, and they besieged it. Now, it says... 32 kings there. They would have been governors in, in, uh, in Samaria. So he brought the whole nation up, and they besieged Samaria. We don't know how long the siege took place, but we know once a letter is sent to Ahab, Ahab cowards out right away. Instead of looking to the God of Israel, he just folds. See it in verse 2. And he sent messages to Ahab, king of Israel, and to the city and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold are mine, thy wives also and thy children, even the fairest are mine. And uh, Ahab answers back immediately. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. He just gives up automatically. You can have everything. Now in the back of Ben-Hadad's mind, he says, That's, That was too quick. That was too quick. Perhaps I gave in too quick. Did you ever do that? I've done that. I went to buy a car one time, and a guy said he wanted so much money for it, and I said, I'll give you this much. Okay. I thought, oh, man, I probably could have given a little less. You know, and I, uh, he, he gave up too quick. So Ben-Hadad says there's something going on here. I know he's hiding stuff. I know he's trying to uh, put things away so we won't find them. And, he's, and again, verse 5, and the messages, verse 5, and the messages uh, came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me the silver and gold and thy wives, yet will I send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the house of thy servants, and it shall be whatever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put in their hand and take it away. So the king of Israel knows that he, he has a problem now. They're going to come in and search out everything. Now, I want you to notice, Jezebel isn't even mentioned here. He's getting ready to give up Jezebel. 
you can have what little gold I have and take my wives with you, and Jezebel included in that. But he's, he just says, uh, no, they're going to come and search now. They're going to find everything I have, and they're going to take it all away. So what does he do? He goes to his council, and we see that in verse... Uh, uh, verse 7, the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeks mischief. For he sent for me, uh, for me, for my wives, and for my children, and for my silver, and for my gold, and I denied him not. He could have had them all. And all the elders said unto the people and said, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. And then Ben-Hadad gets a little bit of courage now because uh, he has the backing of, of the, uh, the tribes of, of the ten nations. And he says this to the king of Israel. Wherefore, he sent a messenger to Ben-Adad, ben to the king of Syria, rather. Tell my lord the king that all that thou didst send for to thy servant, at the first I will do. But this thing I, uh, I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. You, I'll give you everything you ask for. You just can't come and search my houses. You just can't come in and search everything. And what happened? Verse 10, and Ben-Hadad sent unto him, said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for hands full of all the people who follow me. In other words, we're going to come, we're going to override you, and we're going to totally destroy you. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad uh, heard this message, he was drinking, and the kings and the pavilions and all, and all uh, said unto him, uh, Unto his servants, set yourselves in array, and they set themselves in array against the city. But Ben-Hadad now is, falls into a stupor. He begins to drink. They're partying before the battle, if you would. They're, they're whipping themselves up, and, and be, they begin drinking in verse 12. And God sent a prophet to Ahab. Now, if I was the Lord, I wouldn't have answered this man at all. I wouldn't have sent the prophet at all if I was the Lord, but I'm not, so it's obvious. I would have just said, well, he's such a wicked man. His wife is so wicked. The Baal worship is wicked. Just let the king of Syria uh, destroy him. Just let him destroy him. But that's not God's way. Verse 13. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab. It was either Elijah or Elisha. We do not know at this point. And thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all the great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. See, Ben-Hadad had a problem. Not only did he stand against the, the king of Israel, but he was standing against the king, king of Israel's God. And God said, I'm not doing this for you, sir. I'm doing this so this, this day they shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab asked a question of the prophet, by whom, he said, who's going who's to arrange this battle? And God said, you're going to, in verse 14. And then Ben-Hadad numbers the young men, the warriors he has within the city, 7,000. And to make a long story short, 7,000 men went out and destroyed the Syrian army. And there was great victory. An incredible, incredible victory. Um, thought. So what happens? Well, the next, uh, the next uh, several months go past, and God sends that prophet back to Ahab again in verse 22. And the prophet came unto the king of Israel and said unto him, Strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what, the, what you're doing, for, for at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come again against thee. In the, in the 
the spring of the year. He's coming again against you. And when he's going to come against you, he's going to come against you with great force. And we get a peek through prophetic glory. God looks into the, the, the meeting room, the command center of Ben-Hadad II. And he gives us a view of what these people are thinking. We see that in verse 23. And the servants of the king of Assyria said unto him, They're gods of the gods of the hills. Therefore we were strong, they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Oh, what were we thinking? We went to fight against uh, the God of Israel, and he's the God of the hills. He's the God of the mountains. No wonder we lost. What could we have been thinking? This time we'll fight on the plains, and our God will win. Why? Because our God is stronger than their God in the plains in, up in the northern kingdom. Pick it up, please, in verse 25. And number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horses and horsemen and chariots for chariots, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he did hearken unto their voice, and so did so. We're coming back again. Not only are we strong, but we're stronger than we were before. And when we fight against the, the, uh, Israel in the plains... We will destroy them. Why? Because our God is the God of the plains. Their God is not the God of, of, of everywhere. He's only geographical. He's only in one place at uh, one time. And what happened? You know the story. God answers Ben-Adad. Again, in verse 28. And there came a man of God and spoke unto the king of Israel, in verse 28. Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said... The Lord God is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude in thine hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. They don't think I'm in the valleys. They don't think I'm the, I'm the God of all glory. They think I'm a limited God. And so you're going to have victory. For what reason? Because I like you? <laughs> not necessarily. Because you're such a good king. No, 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 no. Because you've led my people so wonderfully. No, I'm going to do it so that you may know that I am the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful statement. Now, to make a, a long story shorter, what happens? Well, Israel goes out and fights against the Syrians, and they totally, totally obliterated them. 27,000, I'm sorry, uh, 100,000 Syrian soldiers died in verses 29 and 30. 29,000 escaped, and uh, 27,000 escaped. They went into a city, and a great earthquake took place, and the city collapsed around them and killed them all. God totally destroyed the nation of Syria, that is, their army. So what's the point? What's, what are we getting at? Well, Whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning. See, the Old Testament is there for us to learn who God is and his purposes, to learn what God is like, to see how God dealt with his ancient people, Israel. But we want to make application to us today. See, the world sees God as over there somewhere, don't they? they just, he's over there somewhere somehow. And even if they care anything about God, they don't see him as relevant. Why? Well, because he doesn't fit in my society. He's antiquated. 
that Bible 2,000 years old? It's an antiquated thing. We live in a world of tolerance and technology, freedom to be what I want to be, uh, higher understanding. We're much wiser and don't need to deal with the Bible. Unfortunately, there's some Christians that think that very same thing. Unfortunately. So what, what do they do? Well, I know he's God. I, I've trusted him as my savior. He saved me. He created the heavens and the earth. But my problem is big. My problem's too big for God to handle. I need some kind of professional help, perhaps. I need a drink, a drug, an outlet. I need someone to help me. Why? Because God is out there, and he's not here. And you say, well, that can't be, Pastor Bill. I'd like to share with you just a couple quick examples of God's premier saints. When I name these people, you'll, you'll know uh, who I'm talking about. Elijah. You know Elijah? If you don't, you ought to study about him. Great, great man of God. Elijah had a, a battle against the prophets of Baal. How long halt ye between two opinions? If God be God, you honor him. And if Baal is God, honor him. So they set up a meeting on top of Mount Carmel. Wonderful place. At the top of the mountain, the, the prophets of Baal set up an altar and sacrificed upon the altar, and they're calling down fire. Now, now for a fertility god, that shouldn't be a problem. No problem, he's a fertility god. Fire should come right down from Baal. What happened? They march around the altar. Hey, old Baal, hear us. For a full day, they begin to cut themselves, hoping that the deity will take pity on them or something. Nothing happens. Elijah starts saying, maybe he's sleeping. Perhaps he's gone away on a vacation or something. Well, at the end of the day, Elijah cleaned up the whole mess had them bring up some water. They dumped water on the sacrifice, on the rocks. The water was running down in pools. And Elijah now confronts the God of all glory. And it's interesting. He says, oh, God, bring down fire. Fire comes from heaven, devours the sacrifice, the stones, the wood, even licks up the water, the God of Israel. Then, Elijah receives a letter from Jezebel. I'm going to kill you. Zip! He runs away. He runs away like a wounded chicken. Incredible to think about. Elijah, can God bring down fire? Oh, yes! He can bring down fire from heaven. Oh, Jehovah send fire! Down it comes, consumes everything. But Elijah can... God handled Jezebel? Well, fire from heaven is one thing. Jezebel, she's something else. I couldn't, can't handle Jezebel. I'll give you another example. Moses. Moses, a great man of God, takes the nation of Israel out of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. They're out in the wilderness, and Israel starts screaming, we want meat, we want meat to eat. And God said, I'm going to give them meat, Moses. I'm going to give them meat for one solid month. Moses is out in the wilderness. He said, God, I, I, I want you to think about something here. See, after we fought these battles, 
in the book of Numbers, we, we, have, we still have 600,000 footmen. Those are the big guys. Those are the, that's the front guard. They don't eat one egg. They don't eat one hamburger. These guys eat 20 quarter pounders. These are the big guys. And you said you're going to send them meat to eat for a month, a whole month? God, consider this now. God said, I told you I want them. Go and tell those people I will give them meat for a month to eat. Now, if we would take Moses aside, we would say, Moses, did God create the heavens and the earth? Of course he did. I wrote about it. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. Of course he's God. Well, if he can create the heavens and the earth, can't he feed 600,000 footmen for a month? Oh, creating heavens and earth in six days, that's one thing, but 600 footmen fed, that, that's something else. Why? Because for a limited time in the lives of these great men of God, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of them, please understand me, because I fall prey to the very same thing, but I recognize uh, these great men of God had times of doubt. Yes, he's God way out there, but he can't fulfill the needs I have in my own life right now. And they only trusted God when they could put him in their own box. So I want to think about this for a moment for you and I. And I want to look at a couple of verses, if I may, a few verses, to hang our spiritual strength on. I need that. And I'm no different than you in any way. You need that as well. Our God is omni, uh, omnipotent, meaning a fancy word for he knows everything. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And I want to look at God's word as New Testament believers so that we can hang our strength on some of this. Because without that truth in your life and in my life, without that truth in our life, we fall prey to God not being able to handle our problems. So we try to handle it ourselves. We connive and scheme and, and turn circles. Why? Because God can't handle this, but I can and we often get ourselves in more trouble and get ourselves into sin. And remember, you can choose the sin, but you can't choose the consequences behind it. For example, where is God? Well, the scriptures tell you and I, he's closer than hands and feet. He's in you. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and verse 27, he's Christ in you, the hope or assurance of glory. No matter what your situation, no matter what your trial or your enemy, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. Wow. That's strength, isn't it? No matter what your spiritual or emotional weakness, you can be strengthened with all might by his spirit in a man. Ephesians 3. Philippians 4 tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not way out there, folks. He's right here. He's right here. He's right in me. And I can be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man. I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. I can't do it. I'm weak. Then you are not trusting God. Then you're not trusting God. You're saying he's God way out there, but he can't handle my problem. He's strong enough. He's in you. He's God. 
no matter what, no matter what your past has been like, what sin you've done or what sin that's been done unto you, Christ has forgiven you. Often we go to our past. I didn't have such a great uh, young upbringing. I, I remember things in my past that, I, that I, I, I did and things that were done to me, and every once in a while my mind will focus on those things. I, 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 I'm blinded and I look at those things. Oh, oh, woe is me, woe is me. But what does God's word say? In Christ you're forgiven. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your sins. How many sins were forgiven? All of them. All of them. But what happens every once in a while, I'll throw out that grappling hook and pull one up. How could God forgive me? Because he's God. Because he's God. No matter what your emotional mind brings up, you can have victory over it, the scriptures tell us. 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, or carnal, rather, but mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations of fleshly thoughts, of gratification, the term there is, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because he's God. He's not way out there looking, oh, I wonder what he'll do. See, God not only knows what is and what will be, he knows what could have been. I won't have you turn there, but in our responsive reading, if the prophets had prophesied in my name, he says, if they have, then. You know, in Arabic, the word is inshallah, inshallah. And the thought is there, if God wills. The kuman is, uh, I mean, um, kuman, that's a city. <clears throat> their holy book is uh, loaded with that thought of if God wills. So the thought is kind of, uh, oh, well, if God wills. But listen, God expects you to do something, and he'll do something. You say, well, I don't know about that. God's going to accomplish. Yes, he is. He will accomplish his perfect will, but he allows certain things to happen. You say, well, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that, Pastor. Well, then look at the unconditional covenants with Israel. If you will, then I will. See, God has a plan. God wants you to work through him. God wants you to trust his word. Well, what, what, about, what about my old life, my old, the way I was? If any man be in Christ, he's a new, new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. What's become new? Everything. All things. See, but I was wicked. Yeah, but you're in Christ, and you've been forgiven. And all things have become new. No matter what you've thought, no matter what you've tried to do, the only victory comes from obedience to God's word. Turn with me, please, to Romans 6 for a moment. I'm running out of time quickly. Romans 6. New Testament book of Romans in chapter 6. God tells us that we need to obey his word. Now, how can you obey his word if you don't know it? Huh? If the only time you open your Bible is Sunday morning when you get here, how will you know 
how to live the week. You can't. You can't. Say, well, I'm pretty smart. Yeah, but you're not that smart. Romans chapter 6. Look with me, at, with me please, at just a couple of passages. Look at verse 11. Romans 6, 11. Likewise, Paul letting us know that we need to, uh, because we have died in Christ, he died with us, he died for us, we're in Christ. When he died, we died. When he rose from the dead, we rose with him. When he's going to ascend up into glory, we're there with him. Why? Because he's in me and with me and through me. Then he says in verse 11, likewise, in the same manner, reckon. The term reckon there is it's to take an inventory, to estimate, to conclude, to place on the account, literally to put it in the bank. Likewise, reckon, therefore. Reckon yourselves also be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. You can't just say, inshallah, it doesn't matter if God wills. No, no, God has given you some instructions to follow. You can't just walk around doing what you want to do and think, I wonder what God thinks about this. I'll tell you what he thinks about it. It's right here. Get in it. Look at it to see what he has to say. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in his lust. Now this is key, please. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God wants us to walk with him and honor him, to look at his word and be doers of the word. No matter what you have thought or what you have tried to do, the only victory can come through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the word of God. A couple more verses and we'll conclude. He is not only the God of the hills, a God up there somewhere, a God, he's in Israel. He's, he's, he's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's all-powerful. He has provided the way of escape that we might be able to bear testings and trials. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. You don't need to allow the power of darkness to rule in your life. You say, well, uh, Pastor Bill, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, you know, we live in a bad place, you know, and I'm afraid Bernie might get in or Biden might get in or Trump might get in or I- I'm afraid of the virus out there. I'm afraid of everything. Galatians 1, 4. He's delivered us from this present evil age. Should we be concerned about the virus? Yeah. Yeah, we should. Don't be foolish. Should we be concerned about Bernie or Biden or President Trump? No. Why? God has the kings in his hand. He's going to deal with it. Yes, we have a responsibility. You vote the way you feel led to vote. I don't, I, I'm going to shop right there. Let's keep going on. <laughs> but recognize, recognize that God's sovereign. You don't need to fear. Just trust him. He knows what he's doing. Do you know that? He does. He knows what he's doing. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
we can submit ourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's given us the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He has done all this so that we might believe his word and act accordingly. He's done this for us, for you and I. But he's also told us the way of the transgressor is hard. If you go against that, if you go against what God has said, it will not be easy. Why? Because he has promised us that. As much as he's promised you peace and joy, he's promised you troubles if you don't. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Well, you know, I'm busy. I, I, I have a, yeah, yeah. You need God's word more than you need anything you're busy with. You do. You do. When I consider the works of thy hands, thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The answer is this. Without Christ, man is nothing. Without following God's word, man is in trouble. Without joining together in worship, we fall prey to the world round about us. 